This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. Have you ever met a Google Maps athlete? Someone who spends all day training in every corner of the world? I'm talking about competitive geo-guessing. That online game where people have to guess what random spot in the world they've been dumped in. We've all had a go. Everyone in COVID was jumping on, burning through time. It's fun. It's a, it's a good way to waste a bit of time. Some people, though, have managed to turn this hobby into a career, basically. They're playing for prizes of tens of thousands of dollars. And you're going to meet one later in this podcast, a guy hoping to represent Australia this year at the GeoGuessr World Cup. What does it take? How do you train for something like that? We're going to ask him. Later, we're explaining the West Bank. We've been hearing a lot about it in the news. So what's the backstory to this territory in the Middle East? Why is it significant to what's happening in Gaza? We'll fill you in. First, though. Pack. With my concussion, everything kind of fell away from me. On Triple J. Playing sport on weekends, after school or work, for a lot of people is their big release. Whether it's really competitive, you're doing it just to keep fit, maybe make some friends... It's something a lot of us are into, and maybe you don't think about the risks involved very much, like whether you're going to acquire a permanent injury, brain damage, because it's just a bit of fun, right? But for a long time, medical experts have been saying, they've been warning, it's really risky, and kids, people playing community sport, need to be paying close attention and avoiding the risks as best they can. A lot of this is about concussion and what teachers, parents, coaches, you as a player should do if you get a knock to the head. Well, today, some guidelines were released about that, and they're effectively rules that will cover anyone who's not an elite athlete, so most people playing sport in Australia. And they recommend anyone who's been concussed to sit out for three weeks. Is it enough? I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this. Message in 0439757555 if this is going to affect you, how you play sport. First, though, here's Angel Parsons to walk us through the detail. Whether it's a bit of social netball or your weekly soccer game, it can be easy to think that we are a long way from the elite world of hard knocks and serious injuries, but that's not really true. 95% of concussions are not occurring in the elite level. Yep, in Aussie sport, most of these serious head injuries are happening to people like you and me in community and junior sport. I mean, everybody sees the elite level in their lounge room every weekend uh, from multiple angles, close up and all of that, and it causes a lot of alarm. And we know that there is alarm and concern, not just in the sports sector, but across the Australian community. This is Dr David Hughes. He's the Chief Medical Officer with the Australian Institute of Sport, which today released some guidelines about what should happen if a player gets concussed. But before I get into them, here's a quick 101 on what concussion actually is. All concussion is serious. It's a brain injury, and it can be caused by a fall, a knock to the head, or anywhere in the body, really, if the force is transmitted to the head. It can take hours or days for symptoms to come on, so recognising concussion can be tricky. But things to look out for include being dazed or vacant, amnesia, difficulty concentrating, a headache, and vomiting. And given how common this can be, there have been calls for a while now to have the same rules across all community and kids' sport. This was in response to uh, 
teachers and uh, parents and others in community sports saying to us, this is crazy, it is too confusing, we need one set of guidelines, one set of uh, recommendations to follow. So the AIS has released this framework that brings us into line with the UK and New Zealand. It recommends athletes be symptom-free for 14 days before returning to contact training and to wait at least 21 days before returning to competitive contact sport. Athletes can return to light exercise within 24 to 48 hours. The guidelines also talk about work and school taking priority over returning to sport. And it suggests that schools and clubs should have a concussion officer, kind of like a fire warden, to make sure the proper rules are followed. There's also some specific advice for children and for athletes who've had a few concussions. And athletes who've made it all the way to the top are welcoming this advice. Here's Diamond's netballer, Maddie Proud. You've got to make sure that you go through those steps and go through the right processes to get back to being 100% because you kind of can't hide in a game like netball if you're, you're not functioning fully. If in doubt, if in doubt, sit them out. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update. I want to know what you think. How do you feel about sitting out for three weeks if you can cuss while playing sport, even at a community level? Message in 0439757555. I want to unpack that a bit more now with Brendan Swan. He's the CEO of Concussion Australia, which is a charity that's all about educating grassroots communities about concussion. He is with us now. G'day, Brendan. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave, it's good to be back with you again. Yeah, I'm keen to hear what you think after these guidelines have been released. Like, do you think they're going to work? That's the big question everyone's got. Look, the guidelines, uh, one of the biggest challenges with just the Australian legal system is kind of how fragmented we are across the states and and the Commonwealth. Uh, So with respect to the guidelines, they're not actually, they're not enforceable uh, at their core. So uh, this is where there's this kind of, push and pull going on where it, it would appear you know um, that the AIS and the ASC uh, they've released these guidelines uh, they're, they're they're pretty good by the way in, in our view so far um, but we've got this push and pull going on where they're not actually legally enforceable um, and that's because the ASC and the AIS they don't have legal jurisdiction over this issue. I was going to ask about that because that seems to be a massive issue if there's no real way of holding organisations, clubs to account. We've got some messages coming through. Andrew from Melbourne um, says, I've had a few concussions with rugby union especially. Once I had memory loss, I had no idea where I was. I didn't remember going to the game that day. Joel from Sydney says, I'm a rugby league referee for a local park footy. Uh, New South Wales um, NRL has changed the concussion protocols for players from eight to 10 days out to a minimum of 15 days. Someone else, I developed epilepsy as an 18-year-old from five concussions playing footy between 14 and 18 years old. It's huge, Brendan. So many people hitting the text line now have been affected by this. There was also a big Senate inquiry that looked into it recently, and you were part of the, uh, you know, people putting a case forward for what you think we need to be seeing. How much further do we need to go? Like, what would you like to be seeing? Oh, 
with respect, and, and this is because it's so challenging how fragmented this whole system is, we released an official response to the Senate inquiry uh, around two months ago. Uh, and look, that's fairly comprehensive in, in the couple of pages that it is. But from in our view, because we've got this issue of enforceability, we'd actually like to see, and, and we're advocating for the state governments, because this is primarily a state issue, uh, we, we're advocating for the state governments to introduce legislation with respect to concussion uh, that covers things like education guidelines and, and otherwise, uh, and you know, mandatory education for, for certain parts of the community, such as uh, teachers and, and coaches and, uh, you know, dealing with the insurance issues that we, we continue to see in the, in the concussion and head injury space, particularly at the grassroots. So w- w- we're moving there, but on the whole, it's, you know, it's going to be a slow process. I have heard some people talk about this saying that there just needs to be a lot more awareness of exactly, especially at younger levels, what concussion is and when you should be taking action, which is, you know, immediately. Someone else has been talking about under-reporting. That's another thing I've seen mentioned. Is this a worry for you, Brendan? Like, if you say to a player, uh, you have to sit out for three weeks, is it then likely that a lot of players are going to under-report being concussed or teams are not going to be stepping forward and, and enforcing these actions? Oh, I mean, a proactive approach is much preferred to, you know, um, a reactive approach, which is where we are right now. And, you know, on, on our end, it's, you know, we, we've had, you know, we, we've been blocked by a lot of governing bodies from running uh, workshops in the grassroots. So it's actually difficult on our end um, at, at that grassroots level to be able to be doing our work. And so, you know, we've, we've raised it with, with um, various ministers and otherwise at this point. Uh, and so we've really had to go down the political route to try and get the attention that this deserves. And look, it's getting there. You know, you had Minister Butler on air today uh, on the ABC um, uh, News, as well as uh, other commercial programs. Uh, you know, we're getting there slowly, uh, but certainly under-reporting, it is an issue. There's quite a bit of data about the, the level of under-reporting, but of course, it's, you know, given the nature of under-reporting itself, you, you're never going to know the true extent of it. Okay. I mean, it does sound like there, just what you were saying, that there has been a bit of a communication issue in terms of sporting bodies speaking with organisations like yours who are trying to educate grassroots uh, organisations, communities. Not everyone's talking to each other. No, no. Communication has been a, a massive fall down. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're an objective and independent organisation, Concussion Australia, and, and that's the way that, you know, we'll stay for as, certainly as long as I'm in, in this role as CEO. And, uh, you know, it's we've got a lot of work to do as a community, but, you know, these guidelines that they're a good start, you know, we don't have a set, um, you know, a certain time out that we advocate for, but we certainly support a 21-day timeout period. And so, you know, we've, we've got more work to do. And, you know, until we've got, you know, mandatory education, until we're looking at, you know, a much more comprehensive framework, which I, I, I think we're getting there. Uh, it's just going to take time to tell how we go with all of that, Dave. All right. Brendan Swan from Concussion Australia. Stay with us. I just want to go to someone else now who's had experience with concussion, changed their life. Let's hear from uh, Lydia Pingle, who was a footy player. She was in Queensland's top league under the AFLW, but after suffering a few concussions in her mid-20s, she was forced to medically retire. And she's got a neurodegenerative disease, which basically means that her brain is declining, cells are breaking down, uh, they don't know at what rate that's happening. It's obviously changed her life massively. Lydia's a big advocate now and she's with us. Lydia, thanks for coming on Hack. First up, what's your opinion of these new guidelines that have been released for junior and community sport? When I read them, I was, I was like, okay, wow, this is really great news really, really good, really positive, you know, starting to really take concussions seriously and treating, you know, 
your, your top level players, the same as community level players. Can I ask how long it took you to realise the impact your concussions were having on your brain and your health generally? It took too many concussions to realise how much of an impact it was having. My fourth or fifth, that's when I really started to notice in the space of sort of a year and a half, two years to really grasp. You sort of push it to the side a lot, being like the whole, no, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. Like It's not really impacting me. But it, it was probably compounding and compiling each time. So I think that, you know, if I would have had a bit more guidance earlier on, I could have been in a very different situation. What is the point you're at now? Like what's been the impact on your everyday life? What's your situation? I guess I still suffer with headaches and migraines. Weekly, daily they can be. I'm light sensitive, I'm noise sensitive, overstimulation. So, you know, if my brain is trying to process too much information or or new information or learning something new, for me that takes a real tax on my brain and brain fatigue is is a real thing for me. So, you know, I forget a lot of things all the time. Memories are a massive one. Yeah, I was reading somewhere you saying like even sometimes going to order a coffee and kind of forgetting what you're ordering or why you're there. Yes, and it could be because I've just had, you know, say the day before has been a big day, you know, whether it be at work or anything like that and you're just a little bit mentally fatigued. Everyone gets mentally fatigued, obviously, Um, but I sort of feel it a bit more and I'll just be, I was chatting to someone and I was like, oh, yeah, my sister lives um, Oh, like I knew where she lived, but I just couldn't remember. She lives in Innisfail, but I was like, oh, it's North Queensland. Like I just pulling that information. As someone who loves sport, I imagine, and really loved playing, how hard is the adjustment to not playing in the same way? And what have you done to still keep yourself interested, inspired, keep your love of sport going, but obviously not putting yourself at risk? Probably out of the whole thing. I think that's something that I struggled with a lot um, to start with and accept that, okay, I can't play sport anymore or or play it to a level that I want to anymore so that definitely was the most difficult thing to come to terms with took me probably two years to actually accept okay you can't do this anymore you know I can't even go on a a roller coaster or anything like that because the movement of your head like whacking it around for me I'd probably get concussed and it's probably not a smart move you know, go to Pilates, I can go to the gym consistently now, I can go for a run if I want to now. You know, being a part of the Concussion Legacy Foundation is a big thing as well to help in that sense and um, and just, you know, sharing my experiences because I don't really want anybody else to sort of have to deal what with what I've had to sort of deal with. And, I mean, you've also decided to donate your brain to science one day, which is another huge move, I imagine, plays into all of that as well. I didn't even hesitate with doing that. You know, it's super, super important. Um, I always say, well, I'm not going to need it if I'm not around, so somebody else may as well use it for greater good sort of thing. There's no scan at the moment to, to pick these things up. Unfortunately, it is, you know, it's, um, when you have passed on, that that's where the research, where it's at at the minute. So for me, yeah, that was so at least I can still contribute while I'm here and also while I'm not here. Yeah, well, you're doing huge work and we appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Former AFL player, concussion safety advocate Lydia Pingle, appreciate your time. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. We're speaking about these new concussion guidelines that have been announced for all community and junior sport. Hearing from you loud and clear on the text line, Grace says, I got concussed three weeks after a previous concussion riding horses. It was a lot worse. In my opinion, three weeks is not enough. 
off someone else. I'm all for concussion protocols, but at some point we have to accept risks involved, especially in collision sports. Sean from Geelong says sitting out for three plus weeks to treat a head injury is great until you end up completely isolated for those three weeks. They're people's opinions. We've still got Brendan Swan from Concussion Australia with us now. Brendan, you've probably heard a lot of stories like Lydia's, and I mean, you yourself have had this happen to you with concussion. Do you think a lot of young people just don't take it seriously enough? I don't think that's the case at all. We're, we're getting there. Younger people are probably taking it more seriously than ever, but the barriers that we faced have not been decisions made by young people. Uh, so, you know, these guidelines, and I just really want to reiterate that they're not enforceable. So it's it's they're a really good start. And, and you know, I we encourage, you know, the um, sporting bodies to, to adopt them uh, as they are. But, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take time. And, you know, we hear these stories all the time. We help people either by phone, by email, otherwise, and, uh, you know, even doing this type of work with you and, and advocacy through the community, you know, this, this issue is really important. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's affected my life irrevocably. And uh, same as Lydia, we, we have pretty similar symptoms, Lydia and I. And, uh, you know, I'm 10 years down the track from mine, legal proceedings the whole lot and uh you know it's it's been a pretty pretty long journey for me too got someone on the text line says g'day dave concussions from motorsport often fly under the radar they're often way um like really significant like often more significant than ball sports that was from liam i know that's something that you've also brought up brendan that often we don't uh think about all the sports there's a big focus on footy afl nrl but there's so much um else that is risky for a lot of people when they're playing that's right. You know, concussions, they don't just happen in sport. And, you know, although the media is, you know, seems to be very focused on, you know, your, your rugby league union and, and AFL, you know, we, because we've got such poor data around concussion and, you know, we're really looking forward to seeing this framework around uh, this nat- national injury, um, you know, surveillance system or, or otherwise when that hopefully gets off the ground, you know, that's really going to be able to tell us, okay, well, where are the concussions happening? Why are they happening? And how are they happening? And, and how old and, and what gender are these are these people? So, it's going to be, um, you know, we've got this this data problem, we've got this education problem. We're, we're slowly moving towards the policy problem and solving that. We've got this legislative issue, uh, and so you know, we've, we'll we'll move forward slowly, Dave. Well, we appreciate your take, Brendan Swan, CEO of Concussion Australia. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here. And we've got some messages on the text line. Someone says, I've had two operations on my brain to get on top of epilepsy due to my concussions. Just hang the boots up, really. It's not worth it. Hack. Israeli forces have disguised themselves as medics and patients to raid a hospital in the West Bank. On Triple J. Let's head to the Middle East now, where the war in Gaza has been raging for almost four months now. And there's obviously been a big focus on Gaza, but there's another Palestinian territory that you might have been hearing about, the West Bank. Now, it was in the news this week after an Israeli army raided a hospital there. And while it has a lot lot in common with Gaza, the West Bank has its own complex political situation that is worth understanding. Joe Lauder has more. If you were just driving past, it might just look like, as I say, a tiny little village, usually on top of a hill. Red roofs, there are shops, uh, schools. In some of the bigger ones, um, there's public transport. There's even a university in one of them. But the settlers are Israeli citizens. This is the ABC's Middle East correspondent, Tom Joyner, and he's talking about the West Bank. 
It's called that because it's the west bank of the Jordan River. It's one of two Palestinian territories, the other being Gaza, where the war's been raging between Israel and Hamas since October. The west bank is occupied uh, Palestinian territory. What that means is that it's Palestinian land. Um, the land belongs to Palestinians and uh, is nominally controlled by Palestinians. But uh, Israel has sort of forced itself using its military to, uh, onto the land since 1967. So for the last five or six decades, although it's Palestinian territory, it's been under Israeli uh, control. In Gaza, the military group Hamas has had political control for years, but it's different in the West Bank. It's administered by the Palestinian Authority, with the Israeli military also exercising control in the territory. And as Tom was saying, there's also a growing number of Israeli towns throughout the territory, with estimates of about half a million Israeli settlers living there. Israel has been moving uh, its own citizens from Israel over the border into the West Bank, uh, into these little villages, which are called settlements. There's over 250 of them uh, in the West Bank. Tristan Dunning is an honorary research fellow at the University of Queensland, and he wrote his PhD on Hamas. And then the Israeli government does give subsidies to um, settlers in, in kind of what they've recognised as legal settlements in their mind, which they're not kind of little villages or anything like that. These are very large apartment blocks that have big walls, that have armed guards and so forth. Israel disputes the illegality of the settlements. It cites its ongoing historical connection to the area and calls it by its biblical name of Judea and Samaria. But they're considered illegal under international law and the Australian government calls them illegal. They breach Article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which states that the occupying power shall not deport or transfer parts of its civilian population into the territory it occupies. It's not just the towns themselves either. The West Bank has hundreds of roadblocks, obstructions and roads that are restricted by checkpoints that connect the towns to each other and to Israel. It makes it harder for Palestinian people to get around. It's really hard to picture as an Australian what life is like when you have really no control over whether or not you're going to be able to get to another village for your shift at work because a soldier might just decide that they're not going to let you through the West Bank is an incredibly tense place right now. It was already tense before October 7. In the past couple of years, there's been a dramatic increase in what's described as settler violence in the West Bank, and it's got lots of international attention. It's been ramping up again since a Hamas attack on southern Israel on October 7, when Hamas gunmen killed 1,200 people and took about 250 hostages. So many documented examples of settlers just attacking Palestinian farmers, trying to harvest olives or setting fire to buildings or throwing rocks at cars, even uh, settlers who've killed Palestinians. And this is part of a growing problem in the occupied West Bank. The UN says 2023 was the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank since it began recording casualties. It's not all one-sided. Last February, a Palestinian militant shot and killed two settlers, sparking a harsh retaliation. Then in December, Australia and a number of other countries like the UK and Canada and the European Union put out this strong statement calling settler violence unacceptable. We strongly condemn the violent acts committed by extremist settlers which are terrorising Palestinian communities 
Israel's failure to protect Palestinians and prosecute extremist settlers has led to an environment of near-complete impunity in which settler violence has reached unprecedented levels. The fighting is still continuing in Gaza, where local authorities now say the death toll is almost 27,000 people. There's more news as well about a potential ceasefire that would involve another hostage release and more aid to Gaza. But looking beyond that, there's a question of what the long-term solution is. The US spokesman for the State Department, Matthew Miller, said overnight that they have long supported a two-state solution where there is both Israel and a separate Palestinian nation. Yes, we are actively pursuing the establishment of an independent Palestinian state with real security guarantees for Israel because we do believe that is the best way to bring about lasting peace and security for Israel, for Palestinians and for the region. The West Bank is a key area in what's hoped to be part of a future Palestinian state. And Palestinians say Israel is taking that territory away bit by bit with the settlements. Tristan Dunning describes what's happening on the West Bank as the, quote, Swiss cheese model. So Palestinians will sometimes say it's like talking about who gets what piece of the pizza when somebody else is already eating the pizza. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that explainer. And we are going to keep breaking down what is happening in the Middle East for you. If there's something that you would like us to explain, hit us up on the text line or Instagram as well. Let us know. We'll do our best. Hack. Okay, this is Australia. It looks like Alice Springs, actually. On Triple J. Have you got a hobby that you know you would crush if it was a competitive sport? I mean, it's the ultimate life achievement, right? To turn something you spend way too much time doing into an elite sport, something incredible, a World Cup. Oscar Pierce is someone who's managed this. For the next seven months, he's going to be training day and night to hopefully represent Australia at the World Cup for GeoGuessr. Hack. Guessing where in Australia I am? Guessing where I am on Google Maps. First thing I always tell people to learn is telephone poles, ballers, learning what side of the road countries drive on. This looks like it is in Bilbao. Guessing where I am on Google Maps in only one second. On Triple Jack. Yeah, you know what I mean? The game where you're chucked in a random spot anywhere in the world through Google Street View. You have to figure out where you are using little clues, street signs cars, soil colour, I don't know. Someone who does know is Oscar. He's an expert and he's our new sporting icon. Oscar Pierce, welcome to Hack. G'day, Dave. Great to be on. <laughs> Did you get into GeoGuessr like everyone else? You were bored at home during COVID? No, I actually found it much earlier when I was in high school in geography class. My teacher actually made us play it. And at the time, I thought it was all right. You know, I enjoyed it, but I, I only regained my love for it uh, much later. And yeah, when, when COVID came around, that's when I really got into it. Okay. So when did you realize, oh, I'm actually good at this world cup. Good. That's how good I am. Oh, I think that was, that was when I took a little break from the game when I went on a travel. And while I was over there, I was reflecting, you know, I have, I have, I have a decent amount of time. Let me actually put in the hours and become a top competitor. That was around, uh, towards the end of 2022. Okay. And like, can you explain how you trained for this? If you're training for this World Cup for competitions, how do you prepare yourself when you're honestly just put anywhere in the world? What are some of the things that you can do to prepare yourself? 
there are so many different ways to practice on GeoGuessr. You can learn phone codes. You can go in and learn town names. One of my favorite ways is just to pick a certain subdivision of a country. So I could pick New South Wales and I would just play New South Wales until I have a really good sense for all the different parts of the country and then just rinse and repeat that for the whole world. And then that's when you become a top competitor. So you must have this random knowledge of all, like, like you said, phone codes, languages as well. Have you just picked up all these language skills? Yeah, there are all kinds of random pieces of knowledge about different languages, different parts of the world. Here's a tidbit for you. In Tasmania, we discovered that the possum guards on the poles are often colored like a kind of olive green color. And that's nowhere else in the world. So as soon as you see one of these olive green possum guards on the pole, uh, you can just guess Tasmania. Okay. I was going to ask how hard it is at this level because I'm going to be serious. I've played it a bit. The hack team was playing it today. At our level, you can see the Colosseum in the background. So it's not that hard. (laughs) How hard is it for you? I mean, often when you go to these tournaments, they're picking locations in very remote areas where all you can see is a forest and the dirt color and absolutely nothing else. So you have to have a really good sense of all the different landscapes that you get around the world. And uh, yeah, it is extremely difficult. Okay. This is so interesting. I'm into it. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Oscar Pierce, who's going to be hopefully representing Australia at the World Cup for GeoGuessr, something that I guess a lot of us have played, spend a lot of time online doing. What's the proudest you've been, Oscar, the best guess that you were like, how did I figure that one out? Oh, that's a really, that's a really good question. There was a tournament recently that I played in. We were in the grand finals, a smaller tournament at the World Cup. Um, and everyone thought it was going to be Western Europe. And somehow I just got the sense that it was going to be in Eastern Europe. And so out of all the competitors, all my teammates, they went off in East Western Europe all of the opponents did as well. And then I made the hero guess and we won the tournament. So that has to be one of the proudest. Okay, that's that's good. Who's the best in the world? If there's one competitor that you're just eyeing off thinking, got to knock them off. Oh, there's, there's a few good options for that. I think you have to look at the World Cup winner from last year, Consus, who's a Dutch player. The guy is just like a robot. He really doesn't miss anything. So yeah, probably him. I wanted to ask how it affects you in real life. For instance, are you a big traveler or does it make you want to travel or not want to travel because you feel like you've seen everything from your computer? You know, that's a great question. I already enjoyed travel before getting into GeoGuess heavily, but afterwards I love it so much more now. And when I'm going places, I'm noticing all these stupid little details. I'm like looking at the trees, seeing what the branches are like and looking at the signage, all that kind of stuff. And one thing I would say about that is that there is such such a thing as the GeoGuessr player um, to Slovenia traveler pipeline because everyone realizes when they play the game how beautiful Slovenia is. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's going to be checking it out now. And just quickly, what do you win at the World Cup? What's the prize? Um, The total prize pool for the whole circuit is $100,000 US dollars. But... um, yeah, you can you can win a, uh, a portion of that if you win the whole thing. That is crazy. Well, look, we're sending you all the good luck, Oscar. We're going to be checking in. GeoGuessr expert Oscar Pierce, thank you very much for breaking that all down for us on Hack. Cheers, Dave. Hack on Triple J. Oscar Pierce there. Incredible stuff that he's doing. I find it so interesting. And you get hooked with GeoGuessr. Like, as soon as I logged on today... I couldn't get enough of it. I thought I could spend the whole day doing this, but I've got to crack on with work. Hey, that is all we've got time for on this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. We've got the shake-up. Looking forward to it. I'll catch you then. See ya. Listener.
Tackle.